Hello and welcome to Season 3 of the E3 Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about building science, healthy homes, architecture, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. So today on the podcast, I'm really excited to have a fellow uh, pretty good house advocate and architect on uh, to talk to you guys. So Kurt, welcome to the podcast. Tell everybody who you are, uh, where you're at, what you've been up to, uh, and then we'll talk about uh, one of my favorite topics, the end of disposability. So tell us who you are. Sure. Thanks. Um, my name is Kurt Nicewonder. I'm based in Flint, Michigan now, uh, although... I have roots in Connecticut, so I did. I grew up in Connecticut, uh, in Stanford. If you're familiar with Fairfield County or the southwestern corner, um, and I am an architect and also a teacher. I teach um, at Lawrence Tech University here in in Southfield, Michigan, and um, in the topic areas of HVAC systems and a little bit of studio teaching as well. Whatever they decide to, you know. Uh, throw on my on my uh, curriculum or whatever you want to call it the course schedule um, as a, I'm, so I'm just an adjunct faculty member and I uh, well let's see I guess the biggest news is that as of January I went officially on my own to start my own office and and so it's going well since we're in into July now and so there's no turning back. <laughs> No, no crying and 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 uh, and retreating to some other uh, reality, but no, it's going all right. And I have a few different project types. Uh, also, I kind of you know it, it all spawned out of the pandemic, and and so um, a big portion of it is just being remote. And so I work I work from home now, and you know that that whole trend started during the pandemic, and then you know while working for a previous office, and then you know, spiraled or evolved into maybe I could do this thing on my own, which has kind of been something on my mind for a few years now anyway. And so I guess the pandemic was the kick to like make it, make it a reality. And uh, so, you know, utilizing or taking advantage of the remote format makes us a little more nimble and a little agile. So your fees can stretch a little farther and uh, so I have a few projects of my own. I am collaborating with another architect over in California who I met through the Entree Architect Network. So there's really good allies and uh, connections through there. And so that helps, you know, get me in, you know, the, I guess on, on the track or, you know, with some momentum toward kind of doing my own thing without... Um, having too much fear i guess and then the other i should i should not not uh, forget to send credit to my wife who is the the uh, unofficial official cfo of of the office and make sure that we don't operate with uh, no money <laughs> so that's the uh the, the ultimate uh what's the word stress relief is that there's no fear of you know not paying a bill or something. 
That's probably what every good independent architect needs is the uh, outside CFO that's like, what are you doing? You haven't made any money here. Uh, <laughs> you should you should be doing it. And very much like when I started my practice, I was teaching and uh, doing other consulting work and going out on your own. And um, I did it back in 2009 when the market was doing weird things. You did it here in the 2020 when the market is doing weird things. Um, it's really a great time to start a business. So welcome to the world of independent architects out there and congratulations. Um, I think the pandemic has really shown people that work from home saves a ton of time. You know, you're not commuting to the office every day. Um, you have a little bit of expandable space. Um, hopefully you have a space in your house that you can dedicate to your architecture office. That was the thing for me as I took over a bedroom, I closed the door. I'm like, look, when I'm here, I'm, I'm in the office. So I'm not out doing uh, other things in my space. And so if the door's closed. I'm not available. I'm at work, um, which is great for when you have other people who live in your household with you uh, for sure. But um it's given a bigger opportunity for, it seems like everybody has done at least one Zoom call, Google meetup or whatever during this pandemic. So that's gotten a lot easier for us to consult and collaborate with other architects or designers or builders um, across the country, but also to um, work with clients who are maybe not in your geographical location or um, during the pandemic, maybe didn't want to get together in person, right? So you can still make a project happen. Um, Zoom is a great tool for being able to screen share a drawing, a plan set, a 3D model, walk through it. Um, so that's been really a great tool for us. I was already doing it before the pandemic. So for me, it was a pretty seamless transition. Um, here in Maine, we just have a lot of out-of-state clients that come in and build. So they're not always here. And so it was something we were already doing, but then it just kind of grew in leaps and bounds after that. It was something that happened then with every client. And um, I think it really showed a lot of flexibility and creativity in how we practice and where we practice. So, um, yeah, it's, it's good. So congratulations on, on, thanks on, on having, having the, um, uh, I don't even know what, what you call it. It's really scary when you first do it, uh, go out on your own. And then after you've been doing it for a little while, you're like, Oh, what did I think was so scary about that? <laughs> but I hope I hope to get to that point soon. I think I'm, I'm not too far away. Um, yeah, it's definitely there's moments, and I've seen. Um, oh, I don't know. I'm on the Facebook group for Entree Architect, somebody posted like a, a cartoon that that kind of outlined the 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 trajectory or like the day to day shifts of an entrepreneur, which is um, you know, everything's great. Everything's terrible. Everything's great. <laughs> that is and, true. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't have the, the, the lows aren't super low. You know, it's not like a terrible situation, but, um, you know, there are some days where I go, Oh my gosh, you know, uh, what's, you know, hope I don't have, I guess the, the biggest one I have is like, I hope I don't have to harass clients to pay, you know, today or, by next week or, you know, most of them, all, all of them, actually, I'm all up to date. So that's exciting. It's kind of funny. Like, you know, we, 
because I teach as well, you know, you get in these conversations with students who are, are like my, like when I was in school, you know, super excited about particular building or, um, you know, a style of drawing or graphics or whatever. And now the <laughs> things I get excited about, like, ooh, a check came in the mail. It is. <laughs> that invoice got paid. It right is totally <laughs> different. Um, yeah, because being an architect, we're, we're really in the creative end of it, right? And so and maybe at a previous firm, you've gotten some exposure to this, but when you go out on your own, you get the, the full entrepreneur uh, exposure, which is you're in charge of everything, even all the not architecture things, which... I think in so many business books is why they say like so many businesses fail is because somebody will start a business based on this technical skill that you have, right? You might be a great architect, but if you're no good at business, then you don't, you don't do so well. So uh, mm -hmm. the entrepreneur architect group is such a fabulous resource where, you know, people share things they've tried, things they've done, you know, things that are important because you think, oh, you know, I've got to create this logo in this brand. And it's like, no, you're going to create a system so you get paid on time. Like that's that's, that's, that's yeah. number one, uh, you know, in that. And I feel um, in architecture school, and I've talked about this a bunch on the podcast, they don't teach you about business. But at 18, I'm not sure any of us were really super interested in understanding business either. So those of us that teach, it's like, okay, well, what's part of the curriculum? What are they open to? What are you supposed to learn when you get into the field? You know, how many architects are solo practitioners afterwards? That would be a really interesting um, fact to find out because, you know, I talk to a lot of independent architects, you know, and they're out on their own. It's like, well, let's not recreate the wheel. And that's one of the great things that mm -hmm. entrepreneur architect has done is like, Hey, this is my contract and how I set it up. Like, here's how you protect yourself. Here are the people that you need to add to your team. As soon as you financially can afford to add an admin assistant or a CPA or a lawyer, or, you know, don't practice without liability insurance, those kinds of things that seem really scary. Uh, cause you're like, Oh, what, what is it? I don't know. What do I need to know? Um, and you know, what's considered part of a, a business expense. And, you know, there's been some oh, yeah. talk about this, <laughs> right? Like it's great when they pay you with a check, but if you have a system set up where they can pay you online, a lot of people will pay right away. Right. So is it, is it worth paying the fees to your bank or QuickBooks mm -hmm. or, you know, who, whoever is, is doing mm -hmm. that? to get paid right away. And, you know, sometimes the answer is, yeah, it absolutely is worth that, you know, 1% or whatever it is um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to do that. Yeah, I've, so. I've dabbled in that. Uh, I use FreshBooks yeah. and they have, they have the connection to Stripe or ACH mm -hmm. or what, you know, credit cards. And so, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's, it is nice. Although the credit card one, it's, it's, it's like another, another aspect of like, the, the business side of things is like, okay, do I, do I ask for that 2.9% on top of my invoice or do I just be happy that they paid? <laughs> Those are the things like, I guess it's somewhat of an imposter syndrome of business ownership of like, you know, do I have to get into those conversations or not <laughs> yeah well and it's always the question of like what do you do what's the best choice what's the best choice for you because what's the best choice for me isn't always the best choice for you right so it's, it's the 
interesting part of the entrepreneur game where you're out there, you're winning new clients, you're doing the advertising, you're probably building a website or helping someone help you build a website. Then you're doing the actual physical architecture. You know, if you just went out on your own, you're probably doing all the drafting, all of the energy modeling, all of the, you know, you're doing all of those things. And then on top of that, also, you know, paying the bills and making sure it's, it's, it's a lot that you don't think about until you go out on your own. Um, and so mm-hmm. I say like, oh, what's your favorite business book? Cause that's one of the things that I did when I went out <laughs> on my own. I just, I've read yeah. a bunch of business books. Like what mm-hmm. don't I know? What I don't, what don't I know how to do? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's sure. a fun, tricky world, but the pandemic has connected us with so many mm-hmm. people. I mean, before this, you know, last year and a half, I wouldn't have met you in Michigan. And now here we are talking, hanging out on the podcast saying, oh, what cool projects are you doing? What cool projects are, you know, what kind of business war stories can we, you know, can we share? (laughs) Um, Which is uh, the fun part of doing the podcast for me is connecting with with other architects because just like you are the end of disposability as part of your your mission for what you're doing with your architecture firm. collaboration and entre architect is one of my missions like let's not recreate the wheel let's Mm -hmm. share the knowledge that we have created um and especially as you're interested in it and teaching the next generation of students and i'm doing the podcast is as we improve the the quality of our building stock in efficiency and durability and longevity We also are educating people on how to do that well, right? Because every time you introduce something new, um, you can create other issues. And Mm -hmm. so um, whose job is it to know what the, you know, what the compatibility between materials is, the whole physics of the building itself, you know, is this going to leak, you know, is that the guy who sells you the materials, the manufacturer who makes the materials, the architect, the builder. I mean, in a ideal world, we'd all know all of those things and you'd have <laughs> six eyes on it and you'd catch all of it, but we don't always yeah. catch all of it. So, yeah. um, but when you, when you talk about this idea of the end of disposability is something that I've talked about a lot too, is the end of disposable housing. Like let's stop building cheap things that fall down mm-hmm. that rot within five years. And part of that is understanding the physics of building which, which people don't, when yeah. I say that they gloss over, they don't want to talk about building science. <laughs> so they don't want to talk about physics. Like that's something yeah. I learned in high school. And so, but it's, <laughs> it's not a, I mean, it is what it is, but it's, you know, it's not, not this difficult uh, project. Yeah. So as part of creating your own firm, was that your kind of mission statement on, on what you wanted to do? Like what brought you to this idea? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So as you, you mentioned before, before we hit record or you hit the record button and you asked me about my, my website, which a, I'm flattered you you visited. I I doubt. I think you're like visitor number three or or four. Um, aside from me, my wife, yeah. So you're probably three. <laughs> but it's uh yeah it's a it's still I'm still building it or you know starting to uh you know flesh it out and put the detail and projects and things like that. But it the the content that's on there. So the you know that front page is pretty you know, hits you with that first line, the end of disposability. And that, 
really kind of set the tone. I, I wrote a business plan during the pandemic for this company that I wanted to go off on my own. And it it's uh, it stems from some, you know, the office I, I, I left, I was able to get involved in a couple of projects that were, well, so one was a certified passive house here in Michigan. And one, so then that was in about 2013, we were designing and then it was constructed by four, end of 14 or early 15. And then we picked up a second house in 2014 that finished in like 16, I think 2016 or 17. So it's been a little while since those two experiences. Um, but uh, the, the learning from the first one and collaborating with a certified passive house consultant uh, sort of re reignited this, this interest in myself for sustainability, right? You know, I left, so I grew up in Connecticut. I went all the way to LA to go to architecture school. I, I graduated, started working in LA. I, I got LEED accredited in 2008, right when the, uh, the not the pandemic, the, the recession hit. And I mean, because partly because the firm was willing to cover the cost for somebody to, to, it was a small firm, but they wanted to be able to market for that. And I, and I had interest in sustainability anyway, and LEED was getting, you know, it was not super new, but new enough that it was getting that buzz, you know, the buzz around the industry. So anyway, I, I, I got a lead accredited, although I've, I've never used that accreditation except for telling other people kind of how it works. <laughs> but um, so, so, so going from there, then, you know, so having an interest in better buildings, right. You know, doing beyond what the code requires and understanding how to reduce the reliance on um, fossil fuels and, and active systems, electricity demand and so on. And, and so then it, it kind of laid dormant, um, you know, through the recession. And we moved to Michigan where my wife is from, which is why we settled and wound up in Michigan. Um, and then I eventually became, you know, fully employed back in the architecture industry. And then, um, collect, you know, with a, a former coworker who had a couple of contacts that led to that first prod, that first passive house project. Um, you know, we 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 kind of brought that client on as like a, a sort of mutual learning experience. So some of the fee was a little bit reduced in order to collaborate, but then learn some of the information. So see a little bit behind the curtain on the passive house planning package and some of the materials and products and that go into the building. And so I was able, I was basically trying to, you know, soak in as much as I could without like completely um, uh, like hitting that gloss over point where it's like, I have no idea what I'm, <laughs> what I'm looking at. Cause it, it can get, I the PHPP, like that spreadsheet is definitely like a mystery still, you know, to, for, for most of it. I mean, it's like 15 to, I don't know. I don't even, I haven't seen it in a, in a while, the new versions, but so anyway, <clears throat> but just by br bringing that up, you know, some of that, the data input that goes into that is far beyond what you're taught in school. You know, you kind of look at things in, in 
sustainability or green architecture as the buzzword tends to be. And you look at sort of smaller or fewer parts, like, you know, you're looking at continuous insulation, maybe, you know, some higher performing material, but you're not looking at every little like corner and, and aspect that that, uh, 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 planning the planning package asks for and and so that kind of triggered this thing in my in my mind about that you know there's code construction which you can do i mean you can do in your sleep or some people can I, you know like it's it's a here in michigan you can do floor plan i mean you can get a building permit without drawings at all you know you show them a picture in a book and say here's you know and everything is then so my point is everything then becomes reliant on the builder and the inspector sort of cross-checking the compliance to the building code, the, the code book. But that only meets the bare minimum of what is legally allowed, which I think you're in your pretty good house uh, speak. You, you say it's like the crappiest building you're legally allowed to build, right? Which I, right. I find the best it, coin, it just puts it all in one complete sentence. So, so then, you know, learn, learning as, as least as much as I know of, of Passive House is that there's a lot more techno, technical, you know, a building can do more than just what the code book requires. And those sorts of things inspire me to, I'm, I'm just a curious person in general. And, and I think that's why I like architecture and I continue to try and learn things in architecture because I, I enjoy it. You know, I enjoy learning and, and talking about architecture as you could see <laughs> me go on and on forever. But um, the, so, so from there, you know, we, we developed the design, the house uh, design for this passive house, the, the consultant, the passive house consultant was also the client. So he was kind of building this as like a proof of concept of his own business ability to uh, deliver a passive house. Uh, to, and he was also kind of collaborating with a, a, pre, a prefabrication person in, in the Pacific Northwest who was building the wall panels and the roof panels and so they had a, a nice like a uh, fiber base, you know, wood fiber based system versus like a SIP panel or, you know, a, a foam, a fo you know, trying to minimize foam and so on. Anyway, so I'm going off on these, these tangents because I haven't talked about this house in a while, but um, <clears throat> so, you know, not that, not that, so to tie in back to like lead and then comparing to passive house, which if, you know, most of I would imagine all your listeners, because of <clears throat> all of your episodes, should be fully aware of all these things. So I don't need to repeat any of the, the technical details. But, you know, a lead system is a prescriptive, prescriptive based system, checking boxes. And, and Passive House was the first time I was exposed to something that was more performance based. So does the building actually perform as, as good as as advertised, say, you know, the energy model tells you. And that part was really something that um, sort that inspired me to, to want to do buildings probably closer to a passive house than to a lead building. Because in a nutshell, the goals of passive house is to be, you know, 80 to 90% you 
more energy efficient than standard code construction. At least that's what I kind of lean on. And, and which results in a very, you know, it's sort of energy sipping sort of house versus an energy guzzling house, which the code, you know, code book would, would let you have. And, and so anyway, so end of disposability also. So, so one aspect of it is to make our buildings smarter or more um, reactive to the energy problems that we have in, you know, globally and climate change and, and you know, making the buildings better. And then the other sort of half of that disposability is um, my wife is also interested in sustainability, but she's not an architect, but she has um, more of an education in ecology and the landscape, the outdoor environment, right? And so understanding regenerative uh, agricultural practices, native landscapes, and, you know, choosing things from that are more of a closed loop and regenerative aspect outside the building, let's say. And then I'm kind of, I mean, I, I appreciate those things as well, but then I focus, you know, my interest on trying to drive projects toward those closed loops or more um, renewable and regenerative aspects inside the building or from the show, you know, the envelope in, and I don't know, hopefully that analogy can carry through my, this sort of inside and outside, but so, you know, combined the, the, the building project and the landscape that the, the project sits in is all, it's, there's no separation that, you know, you can think of these things as two different silos, but, you know, that every building has to engage with its, its surroundings. And so you're, you're part of this, you know, the earth, right? You know, every building sits on the earth. And so you're connected to everyone else. And so um, that we should be more stewards, you know, not just, it's not just about architecture, right? As, as much as we like to talk about capital A architecture, it's about the stewardship of of the environment as a whole, regardless of the building or the landscape on it. I hope that that's probably the, the longest elevator pitch of of my, my company. I'm gonna have to work on that. So you just have to re-listen to the podcast and cut it down to your two sentences, right? But yeah. I think what you described uh, follows along with a lot of practices that um, the building science community is trying to work with. You know, everything from permaculture and regenerative landscapes. I mean, we look at it, um, grass is a monoculture and it does not help any of our wildlife, any of our pollinators, any of that stuff. But it also is like a multi-billion dollar industry of people with tractors mowing their lawns, using uh, pesticides and stuff to get their lawn to be that monoculture, right? Because people don't want dandelions and clovers and, you know, all the other stuff that's in that. Mm -hmm. um, and well, that we do. We do. We definitely do. I want a whole lot less grass. Um, you know, not that anybody can see us right now on our on our Zoom call, but the background for my Zoom is my office partner is a landscape architect. And so she built in all of these pollinator plants and you know, mm -hmm. she has a dog, so she has a small area of grass, but then she's got a wildflower buffer and she spent a lot of time looking at what would grow on their site because they have really poor 
clay soil, right? So it doesn't drain that well and not all the plants will grow in it. And um, so there's, there's a lot of effort that goes into that to create these natural landscapes that are actually regenerative to the project. But then you take it to the next level, like you were talking about um, with Passive House, which is a performance metric, which they don't necessarily care what materials you use to meet the performance metrics, but then you have lead and they care about where the materials come from and maybe what they are. And then you go to living building challenge, which takes it all together and says, well, which one of these are on the chemical red list? Can you not use in your project? And where's your energy come from? And how are you processing the waste that's on your site? Um, which is a super exciting thing. But even as you were talking about the passive house that you worked on, which was great, they had aimed for a foam free environment, which meant they started to think about what's the carbon impact of the materials from day one when it arrives at your site, which is something that we only have gotten more into in the last five years, because prior to that, it was what's the operational energy of the building. Now we're talking about, well, what are the actual materials for, you know, carbon density on day one of this built environment right now you've built it you've used something to manufacture it transport it get it here you know extract it from the ground etc um and now we're taking it i would say in 2020 we really took the next leap into well what's the indoor environment that you've left people with right now that you've made that but also one of the things that I love to to talk about, and I've talked to a couple of people from Vermont recently. So if you've been listening to the podcast, there've been a bunch of Vermont people on here. I feel like people in Vermont are really connected to natural building materials, but um, I love to see the projects where they're like, we didn't have a dumpster at all on our job site because we used a natural material that could be like this. So this is Vermont cold climate. We used wood siding and the offcuts of the wood we put at the end of the driveway and the neighbors picked them up and burned them in the wood stove. And so like, maybe that's not the most regenerative thing, you know, wood stove, 60% efficient, whatever, but it was a material that could A, be biodegradable if you left it in a pile on the ground, could go right back to what it was, or could be used in uh, you know, in a local culture for, you know, wood stoves and neighbors that didn't go to the landfill. Right. And, um, one of the clients uh, that I talked to, who is a client of Bob Swinburne, um, I met, then I got to meet on site, which was awesome. I got to tour the house with them and the builder and Bob. And, um, he talked about, um, which I don't think we talked about on the podcast, but they had an existing house that, um, you know, was a, was a mouse farm, I think is how he described it. Something, you know, like it had all kinds of creatures that lived all through it. Right. So there was, it, it, it needed to come down, but they salvaged like at least 50%, I think, of the structure that either went back into something or was locally made uh, into something else was you know, used for something. And um, he did a whole spreadsheet on all of the salvaged materials from that. So I love that that's the next aspect of building is, okay, what if we have to take this apart in mm -hmm. the future? What's it made out of? Because you know, like you said about the SIPS panels and they were doing wood fiber, which is awesome. I love to hear that they were doing panels that weren't filled with foam, but like you think about spray foam and these things that are just glued mm -hmm. together, right? If you have to take that apart, what, what is it when you take it apart? Where can it go? Can it go anywhere other than landfill or, you know, wood siding? And yes, 
maybe you'll have to paint it or stain it. And so maybe wood siding isn't the right choice for everybody, but all the offcuts for the wood siding also don't go, you know, when you, when you end a project and you've got dumpsters or trash cans full of vinyl siding pieces that can't go anywhere other than the landfill, it makes you start to to think about the materials then like what are we using in our materials where does this go what have we created mm -hmm. you know and it's great that some people make things out of plastic bottles to you know recycle right. into something else but it's not always upcycling you know the, the yeah the first part of that is don't create more plastic bottles <laughs> yeah 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 so, well that's that you know and another thing that not to interrupt but the what we you know, my wife and I, it, it also kind of informed the business plan, this end of disposability concept is, you know, we, we also have been trying to um, be as zero waste inside this house as possible. And, and there are you know, definitely a lot of information sources out there about zero waste. And there's uh, companies like TerraCycle that you can buy a box for the things that you can't either recycle or compost. And, you know, those things that mostly are plastic, right? There's all kinds of everything. I mean, so going through this exercise of zero waste, which we haven't given up on, but, you know, we kind of, it kind of went, you know, pretty extreme start. And, you know, we were like 99% zero, you know, so we, you have to like refuse plastic at stores and, uh, you know, receipts and I mean, all kinds of, all kinds of things. I mean, and, and now we, we've kind of tapered, pulled back a little bit just cause it's, it, it, I mean, it is just so abundant, unfortunately abundant, like of all the things that you want, <clears throat> excuse me, to be abundant, you know, plastic is not one of them. And it's just, once you go through that, you know, this, this, I call it an exercise, but by doing this, you realize how many things are wrapped in plastic that don't need to be wrapped in plastic? Yeah, and and it goes back. You know, we we've done a little bit of traveling, right? And you go, we've been overseas to to Europe and Iceland, and you know, and so like in Italy, and I would say as an example, you know, you can go around to food vendors and things. I mean, you can get a lot of things that you know, it's either paper or nothing, right? I mean, why the heck? in this country, we have to put, you know, something, stuff it in a plastic bag before you hand it to somebody. But, yeah. Especially uh, if you're, you have one thing. Um, and I think actually it's kind of opportune that this, that we're recording this right now, because I think it's uh, no plastic July or something, right. Just trying to encourage people to, to try it out. Right. Or do, you know, just take one thing out of your, your normal rotation that comes in plastic, right? So, so here's a plug for free for who gives a crap. Um, it's toilet paper. It comes wrapped in paper individually and it comes in a case and you just get a whole case of toilet paper. And so mm. it was a couple of years ago, I think that I found them on the no plastic July and just thought like, why does toilet paper come in a bag covered in plastic wrap? Like what? I mean, why is that a thing? You know? And it's, it's, it's just so interesting that when you, when you apply it and I, I read something recently, you know, cause there was a, an ad that popped up or whatever on the whole no plastic July. Um, and it said, we don't need 
a hundred people to be really excellent at zero, you know, zero plastic. We need a million people to be moderately okay at it. Like that's a better scenario, mm-hmm. right? So even if everybody just stopped buying their toilet paper covered in plastic, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> or, mm-hmm. and it doesn't even have to be that one thing. It could be, it could be anything, you know, and there, there are probably some really viable reasons to have some things that are plastic, but so many things, it's just, you know, it, it, it begins to, and, and it can be as simple as, you know, a internet search to find out if you have a co-op in your area that does bulk mm-hmm. food, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, yes, it's a change in mindset and it's not going to work for everybody and not everybody's going to do it. But you were mentioning Italy, but um, one of our favorite places to go is Costa Rica and they have 80% of their power is made by some kind of renewable energy. And if you get a Coke in a store, you can tell that they've just refilled the Coke bottle because half the time the label is even like, we don't have to crush it and make it a new bottle we can, can just refill it and recap it, you know, like look at all the beer brewers who are home brewers out there who have figured out how to cap bottles in their basement from an existing bottle, right? They don't make bottles, they get one. So is every bottle going to be able to do that? No, but are most of the, peel the label off and put a new label on it. Even that would be, you know, uh, an, an improvement on the, and that's glass, which is recyclable and easy to make into other things, right? And so um, mm-hmm. it's it's amazing to me, you know, what other countries have to do, maybe because they don't really have right. other options. But we look back on it and go, well, we used to do this here. Why all of a mm-hmm. sudden do we need a new bottle now every time we get something, you know, or it was a little bit hard during the pandemic where you couldn't, you know, you couldn't take your reusable bags and you couldn't have your right. yeah. usable coffee cup refilled. Right. I understand that. That's a, that's a, its own thing. Um, but yeah, the, it, it's, it can be s- simple. Yeah. So. It really isn't, you know, yeah, not to to belabor the the point but i mean it it took some getting used to i for both of us in the beginning and it really is because you just get so accustomed to like what quote unquote is the norm mm-hmm. of of society which is the you know abundance of of plastic but once you get used to it 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 gets it's easy and and then it, i mean it's honestly easier in general, because you don't have to find somewhere to put this piece of plastic because you don't have that piece of plastic. And we, we are also, uh, who gives a crap, uh, subscribers. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, we, so we get our box pandemic, of paper. you probably had your box of toilet paper. It was not the toilet paper pandemic for you. Um, I had to laugh at that because I'm like, well, I don't have to wait in line at the store. Yeah had a case of toilet paper that you know with two yeah. people doesn't you know last we a actually long lent, time. lent some lent some to you know some family because you know they they ran short and, i did the oh, same man. thing i took a, a whole box of it to my to my one of my builder partners i said here you go here's a case oh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah you're right is it's not the easy thing to do but it's Um, And they talk about this too in, you know, eating whole foods and changing your patterns is like, it's always a little bit difficult in the beginning until you figure out how to do it. And then 
it becomes relatively simple. And it's the same with building science too, is the first passive house you build is always mm-hmm. going to be the most challenging because at that point, you know nothing. And you might have a more complicated build in the future, but you now have learned all of the principles behind it. So you know the things that you need to concentrate on. And unless you're really into engineering, PHPP will always be a mystery. Um, I worked for an energy engineering company for a number of years that had several mechanical engineers who wrote their own Excel spreadsheets, which could rival PHPP on the complications of formulas I didn't even know you could write, you know, that doesn't even fit in the whole bar at the top. Like you have to scroll the formula. That's how complicated it is. And so, um, but I'm not an engineer by trade. And so, although I understood the value of the input that was coming out of the spreadsheet, when I, um, stopped doing that consulting work as much and did more architecture, I thought if I never see another spreadsheet again, I will be happy. And the truth of it is, is as an architect, I've now created systems that use spreadsheets that are really handy. So I did learn uh, quite a bit about it, but at the same time, not to that level anymore. But one of the things that we talked about on BS and beer the other day was understanding what's happening in the spreadsheet, you know? So when you do energy modeling, you have to kind of know what answers you're looking for. Like what question are you asking yeah. of it? And so you don't necessarily have to know how to write the complicated code that goes behind the BHPP model. But when you add an input in, to understand what the output is that you're expecting. And then if the output is vastly different to kind of know how to trace the system to find out where you maybe made some kind of an error or maybe where there's an error in your structure of what you're trying to build, where you have something that's maybe not gonna perform well, isn't a great detail, isn't you know all that efficient in you know the ways you do it and then for us, for Passive House, so Passive House was created in Germany. It's a fantastic, you know, um, standard for Germany, but they don't have the geographical differences that we have in the United States across the map. And so then being able to take that and interpret it for the specific climate zone that you, you know, might be in. Are you in a cold climate? Are you in a hot and wet climate? You know, what does that mean for the energy usage and, you know, BTUs per square foot metric that, you know, Passive House kind of uses. And for me, um, I did the same. I took the lead exam in 2006. And then in 2009, I did uh, a state energy auditing class and the Building Performance Institute auditing class. And then I think it was 2010 or 11, I did the uh, HERS rating. And so I've been a HERS rater since then. And then in 2016, I took the Passive House course. And it was funny because um, in the Passive House course, the instructor was like, why are you here? Because when we were doing, you know, just basic energy modeling and, you know, uh, calculations, because at that point, I, I mean, I'm a super nerd, had been into it for a while. I understood a lot of that stuff. And I said, because this certification is going to show me something I don't already know, because every certification looks at some different aspect of a building. And I learned a lot more about mechanical and 
I knew a fair amount of how thermal bridging works, but the thermal bridging modeling and the way they install windows was definitely like an aha moment. Like, oh yeah, it's the mid mount center windows where you'd get pushback on that in the traditional building world where people are used to flange windows that are mm-hmm. outset that they know how to flash and control the water on, which is the number one durability issue in a building is where does the water going to go, right? So, you know, now you have this, this new thing. And so um, for me, it was just really interesting. And I don't know if it's a traditional architect's brain that we all just are constant learners. We want to just learn more, do more, or, um, but I will always be, uh, you know, a, a new learner. So it's like, okay, it's about time for another certification. What am I going to do next? Uh, you know, what don't I know? What, and I, I've in 2020, I haven't taken a certification on it, but in 2020, I've been definitely reading a lot more books on mechanicals and understanding how our mechanicals are changing in low load homes and what's involved with, with, um, you know, cause we've moved, I haven't built a house with a fuel appliance other than wood stoves. Like everybody has a wood stove here. It's main. And there are a, you know, a backup source, you lose power, use the wood stove in February. It's kind of cold. You use the wood stove or you just really like the wood stove ambiance. So you use it more and you yeah. run around in your bathing suit. Um, but so we're basically building all electric houses for the last six or so years. Um, and then just learning about that. And as that technology changes and CO2, maybe instead of the traditional, you know, ductless mini splits and, oh, it's, you know, the ductless mini split is the most efficient if it's one head to one compressor and that there's one line and the compressor's like directly outside behind the unit, you know, and line losses and recharging Mm. and what that environmental impact is. And, you know, uh, we've been doing ERVs for several years as well, but just understanding the health impacts of inside our houses as we build these things tighter, what Mm -hmm. is, you know, and, I think work from home really brought that to the forefront is, you know, so many people going into an extra bedroom, maybe that they had in the house, closing the door. So they weren't interrupted while they're doing their work stuff. And then the CO2 levels just being super high. And you're wondering why at three o'clock in the afternoon, you're really more interested in taking a nap than (laughs) doing, you know, whatever these other things because our houses weren't set up for us to be indoors 24 seven. So. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. The actually, I had a question for you. The, sure. uh, so, <clears throat> well, so one, well, one that I can remember is, so did you get certified seats? What a passive house consultant. Are you a consultant? Yes. Okay. Cause I'm actually considering pursuing that as well. I don't know what year I would like to, but, um, I, you know, I'm on the fence. I'm, I'm like leaning toward it, but I'm on the fence, but, um, I guess would, would you recommend that to architects that are interested in the idea or only if I would definitely recommend it. Um, I think it depends on what avenues you want to pursue. So the training is 100% worthwhile. Every certification that you take is going to teach you something new that you don't already know. And as learners, you know, we, we just, we like to learn different ways, different methods. The passive house community is a, 
Um, I, I, I've found with building science and passive houses that they love to share. They're very kind individuals who will share all their information, um, which is, which is really a great way to learn. Um, if you don't think that you're going to build passive houses, you know, one after another, after another, doing the certification or training, um, is worthwhile for the knowledge, but like a lot of the lead certifications and everything, you have to do them to keep up with your certifications and you mm. know whatever. Um, so what I found was the the HERS Raider training and learning some just basic energy modeling was a great place for architects that are doing new construction. If you're doing a lot of renovation work, the Building Performance Institute is actually a certification that is um, slightly more geared to existing structures and how to evaluate an existing structure, what to do if you've got structures that have um, fuel burning appliances, right? So we in our new construction are moving towards all electric, but mm -hmm. as a rule of thumb here in Maine, we still have a lot of fuel oil burning appliances. And so knowing what you're doing when you're renovating a structure to not create an issue with a gas or, or fuel oil burning appliance is also critically important. And so if you're in a part of the country where natural gas is possible and you have atmospherically drafting um, heating systems that you could create an issue for a homeowner. Um, I think mm -hmm. that if you're doing a lot of renovation work is a slightly better certification. Uh, honestly, I think they're all great and they all have, have different parts that they concentrate on. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's worthwhile to take the training, but some of the passive house training that you could, if you, if you didn't want to become a certified passive house consultant plus designer, but you were interested in doing it, EMU Building Science um, does some great passive pod workshops where you can learn from the contractor's perspective how some of those things go. And that's invaluable for architects because you can go to one of their pod workshops and you can put the tape on and you can see how the stuff goes together. And that makes it easier mm -hmm. for us to draw or easier for us to explain to someone in the field than what you're asking them to do when it's a, when it's yeah. a detail, that's a little bit different. And so yeah, yeah, yeah. if you're not, if you're looking for the knowledge, but you're not looking to maybe be that designer, maybe you're, you're in the pretty good house realm where you're, you're pushing the envelope in all the areas that you can, but you're not looking to, to certify a project. Mm -hmm. Um, then there are a bunch of different certification programs that, help you learn those skills and how to articulate those to the built environment, which I think is equally, if not more important than you being the designer, because you could still do a passive house and hire a consultant, a passive yeah, house consultant right. to help you. And especially in the position that you're in as an independent architect is creating that collaborative process with another person who can help share the load, but still get everybody there is an excellent yeah. way to not have to do all of the parts and pieces, but still understand all of the parts that go into it. Because um, building your network as an independent architect is probably the most important thing that you can do. Um, you know, and whether those people are, you know, right next door to you that you can meet with in person or are part of a larger, you know, online network. Um, 
that's, that's so critical. Um, where we forget that, uh, I think, I don't know if it was back in Roman times, the architect was like the master of all these trades, right? You're this master architect. You knew how all the things, but as stuff gets more complicated, we need to realize that a truly integrated process means that you probably have several people who are on your team who are making it happen, um, in a, in a really collaborative way. And, that might be a consultant that's doing passive house or an energy consultant yeah. where, you know, you say, Hey, I'm going to need this energy model completed in the next week because we need to know X, Y, or Z. And then that tells them, well, which, you know, which software are we using? And I personally felt it was important for me to learn it so that I knew what I was asking for, Yeah. but that it's not necessarily important for me to do all those parts anymore because I now know what I'm asking for and I know what I'm putting out there and I know what I'm expecting to get back. Yeah. And I'm not, you know, and not that you've been doing this for 25 years, right? Cause the cool thing about being an architect is you get to try all kinds of new and different things, but you do establish some things that you repeat over and over again. So when you do an energy model, you're really looking at one component, one corner, one detail, you know, one orientation, you know, one shading. Like if I do this porch here and it's this far out and it's this, how much is that going to cut down on my, cause cold, we're cold climates. How much is it going to cut mm-hmm. down on my wintertime sunlight versus how much can I shade during the summer? Cause this is facing, you know, South or West and it's going to mm-hmm. be really hot. So, um, you can kind of pick and choose those aspects that you're changing on it to get the information that you want out of whatever kind of performance mm-hmm. data you've asked. Yeah. yeah thanks. I just used that master builder topic in, in with my grad student section last night, <laughs> we got into this conversation about um, interest areas that they were considering, you know, after their degree and, you know, the, um, conversation of design build came up and, and various, you know, retaking, you know, sort of some of the aspects that we we've given away at over the decades or centuries as architects. And so, yeah, that's funny. Funny. You bring that up. Oh, you know, Oh, oh sorry. What? I was going to say, you know, we've, we've given up some of those aspects as they've gotten more complicated, but what we failed to do was remain part of it so that it was really collaborative. Right. So maybe we don't do it anymore. And I think we're coming back to that again, right. Is, you know, doing less bid work because every project should really be design build. It doesn't mean that the architect works for the builder, vice versa. It means that the architect and the builder work together during the design process to come up with the best possible solution. So it's going back to design build, but not in the same aspect that people traditionally expected of that. Yeah. Or or what we, the book definition, (laughs) the book definition we learn in school, which I don't think I've ever been in, in involved in a a, a formal design build model that that was exactly like that but anyway the uh you know i think the interesting um thing that the the pretty good house thing in, caught my attention and i i stumbled across it 
Oh, I don't know. It, it, it was before the pandemic. I mean, it might've been like a couple of years and I just kind of, I stumbled across it because of my own interest of you know, sort of following the, the breadcrumbs of sustainability aspects and, and, and performance. And then I, uh, it came back around because some of, well, like the BS and beer show turned into this YouTube, um, channel or you kind of pushed it onto YouTube and, and I started to pick up on, I really appreciated those sort of weekly, I mean, the, the consistency of putting out those conversations and the, I mean, if, if anybody had, I mean, this is a good, hopefully a good plug for that, but I mean, the amount of, and I use, I've, I've shared this with my students too, because the amount of information that you all are putting on each show is a tremendous amount of free knowledge that anybody should be, I mean, maybe not everybody because they might not understand <laughs> some of the aspects, but if you're interested in the, the performance of your building of a, you know, residential or commercial, but in general, the, the building science of it, which is the, the coolest, I mean, the coolest name of any kind of group or or because it started off like as a face-to-face -face meetup right isn't that how it kind of yeah so generated? about 10 years ago we started a performance discussion group at um we have a local uh supply house here that supplies more sustainable performance-based materials um you know see a triple pane tilt and turn windows from europe um low or no VOC paints and stains, cabinetry, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And um, just started to get together locally in Portland and have other professionals and just discuss, you know, the possibilities, right? Because there's new stuff, there's new products coming on the market. There's a ton of different ways. And so we would just get together and it, uh, it, it's a free for all. You know, we have a topic, we talk about it. Someone's up on the board, we take notes. It's fun. You know, we, we have a, a drink after hours together and we just talk building science. And then, um, Portland is, is, uh, probably our most populous area, but it's not easy for people to get to if you don't live directly in Portland. And so we started doing one at uh, a local brewery that was a little bit farther out of the city for people who were kind of practicing, not in the Portland area. And, uh, Mike started that maybe five years ago called, you know, a BS and beer. Cause it was at a brewery. So that was where the idea came off. And we had, um, Mike has written extensively about the pretty good house, which was a crowdsourced idea that happened at our discussion group. And he's written about it in fine home building and lots of articles. We've all at this point done presentations for different, um, conferences, fine home buildings, better buildings, Vermont, um, about our projects and the, and the concept behind it. And, um, so people have, have met, you know, Mike or Dan or Chris, or, you know, some of the other people across the way at different conferences and like, Oh, we want you to videotape your local group. And we're like, yeah, it's, it's not a great format to videotape when it's just kind of all over the place. And then the pandemic hit and we couldn't get together in person, but we have a pretty tight knit group here. And so we're like, we'll just hop on zoom and we'll see if everybody's okay. Who needs support? Like what are people doing to kind of get through this? And it started out as kind of like a free for all, but if you've ever been on a zoom free for all, <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. very challenging because yeah. in, 
you know, if somebody talks at the same time somebody else is talking, it cuts out the audio, then you can't hear anything at all. And so we were like, okay, well, maybe we should, we should introduce a discussion, but only have like a couple of people on the screen at a time. And it's morphed into a series of different things. Um, and in fact, we're currently on a little summer break because it's been a long year and it's yeah. amazing to produce content every week. And we're all super excited about it, but, um, we decided to take a little mini break this summer, coming back full speed again in the fall. And, um, with the same, you know, helping to produce content, but, but listening to what our, uh, the people who tune in live and the people who responded to, to that from, you know, the YouTube channel, um, and that to see like, okay, so we've done different shows. We've done shows where we've talked about a project and like how that, you know, the sustainability aspects of the project we've had, people who we would consider experts in the field on a certain topic come on and answer people's questions or talk about a topic. We've had some where we've just taken a deep dive into something that we're really interested in. And so there's been a lot of different types of shows across the board and we'll continue to do that and trying to decide, you know, some shows that are more homeowner based that aren't the deep dive other shows that, you know, we really attract the people who who want to go to that next level. And we have somebody who's an expert in something that is, you know, way deeper and, you know, harder to understand. And so it's, it's been, it's been so much fun to see where it's gone, uh, over, over the last year or so. And, you know, something mm -hmm. that I'm, I'm pretty happy to have been a part of. So. Yeah. I mean, you know, just as a, uh, part of the, it's one of those things too, which I talked to my wife a lot about, well, through the pandemic, when you couldn't, you could only talk to the people inside of your, your, your home, uh, at least face to face. Um, and, and, you know, it's maybe sort of swinging back to like why I, or why we pushed and went off on my own and, and really kind of used this sentence of the end of disposability is kind of like, uh, no, it's not, it's not really intended to be like a no holds barred sort of like, you know, in your face thing, but like kind of taking a stand on, um, not falling back on what we used to do and, and saying, I want to go back to the way it was before the pandemic. I, I, I'd rather see an, an adaptation or a growth happen that, that moves forward in a new direction or in an altered direction that is better than where it was before. Cause I, I you know, if you just in a nutshell, like, you know, was it that good before <laughs> was life awesome before that you have to go back to that? I mean, I think there's so many things that by, by need necessity or, or force, like, you know, moving to a remote format, the virtual format. And, and as an example, what you never would have planned, I would imagine, with BS and beer, for example, uh, being required to, and it turning into something that sort of exceeds expectations because it's something different. And so that's that's hopefully where I'd, I'd like to head to with, you know, this client base, you know, moving toward a, a unified mindset of being more sustainable and and conscientious of the footprint that they make 
on the environment. And, and so luckily right now um, I have, I mean, as a new firm, you know, I have a little bit of everything, right. I have a little interior commercial renovation, some, some houses, some that are ground up, some that are remodels. And so you find this variety of interest, you know, one, you know, I have one, one project in the upper peninsula of Michigan that they want to, they, they came to me through like a, a Michigan-based energy efficiency um, network. I forget the name of it. It's terrible. I should get my plug, have my plug ready. But they um, were interested in Passive House and and they kind of found me right when I was getting started. And I know I, I actually have, we, we've had a couple of conversations to, to, to say, do you want, do you, I mean, do you want to really hit like passive house and then, you know, take on a potential, you know, first cost increase that's, you know, I don't know, 20%, 25%. I've still not really nailed down like what, and then with the cost of materials, like, you know, I haven't nailed down exactly. I, it's probably even harder now to try and say what the first cost increase is going to be, but then, um, uh, or do you want to try and hit, something that we call pretty good house. So I've used your def, your term, you know, hopefully there's no trademark yet on, on pretty good house, but as, as a, a topic to, to keep them interested in something that's pushing past build base building code, but maybe not all the way to a full passive house. And then it kind of circles or ties back into when I worked, you know, worked on that first passive house, this be, so this, this new project being up in the upper peninsula, a cabin, I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a glorified cabin, but they're interested in this sort of legacy because there's a lot of family property and they, which I, I find is part of the, the exciting part of this project is that it, you know, they have, cabins next to each other they're all family owned and so this one will eventually turn over to the next generation of the family in you know for my client to their children and 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 so they're thinking about the the life the lifetime even past their existence in this building and and what kind of financial burden that the energy will you know cost to this project so i like that aspect that stewardship mindset um and and now what was where was i going i totally was was getting too excited about my client and i forgot about the house oh so with that yeah sorry (laughs) i really like their they're great people and so but it's so they were like we want this we want to they have this cabin that was basically handmade you know 65 75 years ago and it Unfortunately, it's not in a condition where we can remodel it. So, so this design is a new build. And uh, so it's a little bit bigger than the previous. So it's a little high, you know, it's not, not ultra luxury or anything, but it's you know, trying to add in some new amenities that the old cabin didn't have. But so anyway, we're trying to wind, you know, find our way in between, you know, a passive house. Oh, sorry i i'm getting so i'm jumping around but with a passive house and being up north uh, everyone wants that wood burning stove 
or fireplace or something, right? This aspect of fire. And from, you know, so here's what I was trying to get to is from that first design, uh, the, the, the certified passive house, you know, I, I learned that that consultant was like, oh, no, no, no. Like, is like fire was a no-no, right? Anything combustible is going to destroy all the oxygen, you know, consume all the oxygen inside the house. And so, you know, but the other, so the other house that I did, you know, five or six years ago, we didn't get certified, but we, I used those principles as we talked about to try and push this building. And this one's also up North in Michigan. So they, it's a smallish cabin and push that to be as energy efficient as possible. But that client wanted a, uh, some sort of wood burning device. We did find a, a closed, like a fully concealed firebox type direct vent. Um, I think it's a European, I think it's German made. Um, and it sits in the corner. And so it, it, at least it, you know, none of the carbon monoxide and stuff will leak into the, into the passive house and cause people to pass out or anything like that. But so that's the thing about, uh, I think what intrigues me most then about pretty good house is being able to kind of balance a little bit. So you're not too rigid where you could say, well, you can't have this, this, and this, because you're going to blow the energy budget of the passive house, but it's, you know, you don't want to have the code minimum either because it's, it's garbage and, you know, you're going to be paying thousands of dollars in energy bills. So, you know, I, I, you know, I think you can find a, a happy medium where they can have a little bit of, a little bit of both. And it, it really comes down to people eventually, I think people will hopefully see that they don't need that fireplace anymore because a passive house really doesn't need it. But we're so used to these terrible buildings that, you know, the, the first, I mean, I'm sure you've talked about this or had these conversations where they're like, well, how am I going to get cross ventilation? And how, am I, you know, we're, you know, it's going to be drafty over here. And it's, you know, this room is always hotter and this room's always colder. And I, the cool part about having worked on, you know, two built examples that were, you know, passive house is that you don't get all those. What do you, what do I, what do you call it? All those features that a code minimum house has, you know, the drafty spaces, the leaky walls and windows and, and things like that. And, and unfortunately though, most people have no idea that that is a possibility. <laughs> so they want, they still want, to, it's almost like the belts and belt and suspenders. They like they still want as a backup, you know, these other features. So, yeah. Yeah, we did a show on the BS and Beer uh, called Intentional Indoor Fires because people <laughs> have a relationship to fire, right? That they just really love. You know, they want a wood stove because of it. Um, we put a wood stove in a home replacement project that we did with a community action agency and they burned like 10 cords of wood in their previous house. And they were like, we have to have a wood stove. And in the, I talked to them again, I think after the first year and they were like, yeah, we ran it twice because it's so hot in here. When we run this wood stove, it's just like excruciatingly hot in this, in this space. And so you're right is that you don't have those cold spots. You don't have that. And it is unfortunate that your cabin project couldn't 
keep the existing structure. But one other thing that our country doesn't as a whole do and what we need to do with these legacy properties or the you know end of disposability properties that we're creating is remember that there is no such thing as no maintenance right we have to continue to maintain our buildings but hopefully what we're doing with them is creating these really comfortable and beautiful spaces that people really enjoy living in so that they will you know go that extra mile to do the stuff that is you know, easy enough to replace or easy enough to expand if your family grows, you know, this is a, a cabin and, you know, that might be great when you have the parents that have two kids, but then the two kids get married and each of those two kids have two kids. So now there's four kids with four kids, you know, and it, it continues to expand as the generations expand. And so creating these properties that are not only a legacy for our own family, maybe you're going to pass it down in generation, maybe the next generation doesn't want it, but that you're also giving something to the next person who will live there that has been maintained, that has been well-kept. If you go to Italy, there could be a door, an old wooden door that's been there for 500 years. And they just, you know, they sand it down, they stain it, they paint it, they do whatever so that it continues. So they're not replacing that door every mm. 15 years because it's totally rotten that rotted out because, or, you know, has sun stroke because it has been beaten by the sun for a certain amount of time is that they've done things where they've continued to maintain the structures that they have because those structures are created in this idea of, of a legacy property that continues on. And I mean, obviously there are generations like you can dig up anything in Italy and find some previous generation of you know the the historic monuments that are under the streets in in you know in Rome mm -hmm. is amazing. So obviously, legacy maybe doesn't mean thousands and thousands and thousands of years, but maybe it's less than five, ten, fifteen, twenty years that we tear things down, fill our land fills because they are not maintained or they weren't built with the best materials or we didn't understand the science behind how the structure went together and it it rotted in you know in a first couple of years and so looking at nature seeing how nature handles all of the stuff it has where it insulates where it lets its water drip what it you know and using that to guide our principles on how we're doing um with our and, and i think after talking to you for the last hour, that's, that's really the direction you're taking your firm in. And one question that I get a lot is like, how do you, how do you get clients who are asking for this? And maybe we're a little bit privileged in the Northeast because we, it's cold here. <laughs> so maybe people, maybe, but it's cold in Michigan too. Uh, so, you know, the Northeast has a nice contingent where people have been trying to do um, more with building science. And honestly, the 2021 code um, is is getting pretty darn close to passive house, right? So they're pushing the envelope. So at some point in our lives, we'll stop saying code is the worst built house out mm -hmm. there because if we move along with code, which we haven't been doing, but if we moved along with the code, we are building better buildings and that's great. But until that time, there's you and I and a, and a group of people who are just saying that you've come to me as a professional asking for my best advice for you. And this is what that is. And for us, we think that that is, you know, 
building better than, than code to really control the air movement, to understand where the water is going in our buildings and to create something that has longevity for the structure, you know, that we thought about this material and what this material is going to do and how it's going to perform and what it needs. You know, like I love, I swear I haven't done a project with the new contractor in the last five years who isn't like, do we really need this strapping layer? And I'm like, well, what, what kind of siding are you putting on? If you're putting on a reservoir cladding, then yes, we do. Cause it needs to dry out and the wall system needs to dry out. And we, we need to increase the rate of drying without increasing the infiltration rate in our houses, which makes it comfortable for us to live there. And I think as we make things more comfortable, our, our window of comfort, which is only like five to eight degrees anyway, is going to continue to shrink. We will all only be comfortable between 70 and 68 and 50% relative humidity. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, it remind me of like explaining the psych psychrometric chart to my students and what what internal gains really mean <laughs> it's a Which, lot of fun i mean i think i mean uh, uh, hopefully my students don't listen to this till after the semester but you know it's not an easy thing to understand you know sometimes i have to refresh my own memory <laughs> i think you know, comfort it's it's a moving target my my point being right or your point too is that it's not here you know there's a, a, a little it's not bit black of and white yeah. There, there's a lot of gray area in it. And there are, you know, there are 20, a hundred different ways to do everything and how to approach everything. And so giving people, I never understood, uh, you know, anyone who's going to go on to take the architecture registration exams or any of these, uh, building science things. Um, when I took the passive house course, you could use your book because, we're not meant to memorize it. We're meant to look up the information. But for any of your students who decide to listen to this before your semester is over, um, I just want to point out to you that it's you don't know if you actually understand something until you have to teach it to someone else. That is when you will know if you actually understand a concept. So uh, and the psychrometric chart is. I think every time I have to bring that up in a class, people will glaze over uh, and you know, doing heat loss calculations and, and talking about those things. It's like, all of a sudden I see their eyes glaze over in the class. And so, uh, it, it's, it's not easy to the first time you get it. Sometimes you have to do it five times. Um, I remember when I tried to learn zone pressure diagnostics, I thought it was the most complicated thing in the whole world. And now I look at it and go, why did my brain think that was so complicated? Like it's, it's a pretty simple thing that you have to do but at the time I was like I can't I like I just can't wrap my head around what you're asking me to do here um so it's fun keep learning keep doing it and I would love to keep talking to you for another hour and a half but um as great as my listeners are uh you know they probably tap out at about an hour and a half anyway so uh we're we're just shy of that and so i want to say thank you for for coming on and talking building science and architecture and spreading the word and that's basically why i do the podcast every week is um and i think part of 
what I love about BS and beer is even if you watch a show and you have no idea what they're talking about on the show and you feel like it's totally over your head and it's beyond you. The point for me is to know who to reach out to when you don't know what the answer is. And that's creating our community and making our community accessible to everybody where you can say, Hey, you know what? I know enough about mechanical systems to be dangerous. I'm going to get somebody in here who can take that level from dangerous to works perfectly, or, you know, it works in the pretty good house mindset. And I thought you were funny with your, your, uh, mentioning pretty good house and, and hoping it wasn't trademarked. I actually write that directly into my contract. We follow pretty good house standards. Here's the pretty Go there. You can read about it. You can understand it. This is what we practice too. And that does not mutually exclusive from passive house. You can build a pretty good house. That's a passive house. You can build a lead house. That's a pretty good house. You can do all of that stuff. It's merely just a, how to build a pretty damn good house as uh, Dan Colbert would say. And that was where, where it was started. It's like, let's start talking about how we can do this, how we can just build better because it's important and it's what we want to do. So thank you for, for joining me today and, and talking about all these fun stuff. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in for season three of the podcast. If you want more information on the guests, check out the show notes. If you want to contact me with a question, a comment, or a suggestion for the show, reach out emily at matramarch.com. You can find me on Instagram, matramarch, or on LinkedIn, Emily Matram. And you can find me on Thursday nights at the BS and Beer Show. So come join us live one week. Until then, stay nerdy. Stay nerdy.